Lynch. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talked to Megan Brown of Swarthmore College about her new book, The Seventh Member State, Algeria, France, and the European Community. We also talked to Sami Atola of the Policy Initiative and Christiana Pereira of uh, uh, Postdoc at Princeton about the results of the recent elections in Lebanon. And finally, we talked to Cinzia Bianco of the European Council of Foreign Relations about uh, the succession of Mohammed bin Zayed in the United Arab Emirates. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we talked to Megan Brown of Swarthmore College about her new book, The Seventh Member State, Algeria, France, and the European Community, just published by Harvard. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So this book was absolutely fascinating to me as a, you know someone who, who focuses on the Middle East um, to think about Algeria actually being part of the European community kind of blew my mind. And so I wanted to talk with you about this great book. Tell us a little bit about it. So I set out asking how and why was Algeria a part of integrated Europe, which is not really a question that historians have asked very much. And what matters is, is a chronology that is completely overlaid and that is often ignored. So France began to colonize Algeria in 1830 and it very quickly saw Algeria or decided to administer Algeria at the northern parts as mm -hmm. part of France itself, which is a, a very unusual type of colonial administrative practice. And so I came up with this question of what would that mean that in the mid 20th century, as France is a key negotiator for you know, the precursors to the EU and specifically the European Economic Community, what does it mean that these same administrators in Paris are insisting Algeria is not a colony, Algeria just is France. And so the basis of my book is this idea that if Algeria was France, of course, only in the eyes of French bureaucrats, certainly mm -hmm. not in the eyes of Algerians themselves, although that's a whole other story. Yeah, I want to talk about um, that in a few minutes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but if the if these French bureaucrats are so confident in declaring this, what would that actually mean in Brussels? Mm -hmm. And um, what I found is that there are sort of limitations to what these bureaucrats meant. That on the one hand, what my book is examining is why the French would insist so loudly in Brussels, let's include Algeria in integrated Europe, but also the moments when they say, do not include Algeria in integrated Europe. And in the sort of um, complicated interplay of the moments when it is very useful for the French to make such a claim as they are building up these European institutions to say, we absolutely need to include Algeria, which I argue is, is for, um, is a tactic, a, a tool, even a weapon in that they perceive as being very useful in the war against Algerian independence. Um, and then of course, this other question, why their European partners agree? And so that's sort of what the book sets out to be asking, how, how and why does Algeria wind up in the European economic community? Why is that useful for the French? Why do mm -hmm. these other European states agree to this idea that, you know, I think when we think of a lot of discourse about where Europe is, what is Europe, who is European, right? There seems to be a sort of fundamental confidence that we would say, nice. certainly not Algeria. Um, and then there's this incredible after 
that the legacy that goes on for over a decade, really well over a decade after, um, France negotiates the EEC inclusive of Algeria in 1957. Algeria does not gain its independence in, until 1962. And then it's not until 1976 that Algeria as a, you know, by then, literally 14 years after independence, does it actually sign an accord clarifying its relationship with integrated Europe? So there's all these moments of, of question um, and ambiguity, sometimes a very useful ambiguity about Algeria's place in the EEC and the European communities. And I'm, I'm curious and what the book sort of sets out to ask is, you know, when is it useful? For whom is it useful? And so that mm-hmm. that's sort of the how I think about the book project at this point, or the book, it's not a project anymore. <laughs> right, right. I mean, but it's still fascinating though, right? Because there's like these two parallel things that, you know, our, our mental imagery doesn't necessarily line up. The so-called obvious borders of Europe weren't at all obvious in the 1950s. And then secondly, there's on the one hand, as you detail in the book, uh, all these negotiations going on over very technical economic issues, labor movement and wine and all those things. And meanwhile, there's a war of national independence going on that is completely roiling French politics. And so the intersection between those is fascinating. Yeah, it's actually something I really, um, when I uh, present on my work sometimes, I really love, or you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching uh, students you know, some portion of what I research, I love sort of having one slide that's a timeline of European integration, which, you know, particularly for an American audience is often um, not, not very familiar, right, right. especially for undergraduates. Um, and then I show a timeline of some, you know, major moments in the history of the decolonization of even just, I stick to just France. Mm-hmm. And then I just overlay them, you know, one set of the dates are blue, one set are red, whatever, and you overlay them and you see that, of course, they're completely intermingled and it's not an accident, you know, and you, it's, it becomes sort of evident, right, or obvious that we should be talking about um, these phenomenon together, not as if they're existing in these completely different universes or, yeah, parallel timelines or something like that. They really are um, enmeshed with one another. And I think that that is just so, uh, it's really interesting to begin to ask, what does it mean, you know, what does it mean that the European defense community fails, you know, in the midst of uh, the end of France's military presence in Indochina, you know, things like that military and of course, and colonial presence in Indochina, things like that really matter to this history. And I think it's, um, it, it, it raises a lot of exciting questions. And to get back to something that you hinted at uh, a bit earlier, it also raises this question of who who are Algerians? Because on the one hand, you have the Pied Noir and uh, who are French, um, and then you have the vast majority of the Algerian population, which, as as you put it, obviously are not. Um, but it's not so obvious. Um, and and I think you show again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but you show how that affects French negotiating strategy as the Pied Noir suddenly flee after independence. Right. I mean, I think that there it's it's so interesting because the French state benefits so greatly um, from especially in wartime, but not just um, from from being able to say, you know, these people living in Algeria and also other parts of the empire, you know, 
they are French, not not citizens necessarily, mm-hmm. or sometimes sort of citizen with an asterisk, but um, you know, to benefit by drawing labor, including you know, uh, military conscription and more. Um, and so it's very useful, sort of domestically, quote unquote, right, domestic imperially. Mm-hmm. It's useful to say these people absolutely do belong in France because there's labor to be extracted from them. Or And also they are, of course, excellent uh, consumers of, of French goods and are necessary to the French economy's um, function. On the European stage, though, it becomes a lot fuzzier and and so I think this question of, you know, they, they are never doubting that the French citizens of European origin who live in Algeria, who come to be known, as you said, as the Pieds Noirs, there's, they're never doubting that those individuals are European. And there's never a question that they would lose rights through, for example, movement across the Mediterranean into France, or even movement across the Mediterranean, say, into West Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, but it becomes much more complex and almost awkward in a way when they have to also contend with the fact that they've been claiming um, for a few years that truly all Algerians also could hold these French rights. And it's clear that on a European stage, they're not, uh, French officials are not very committed mm-hmm. to following through on that. And yet the very question that they might hold European rights completely um, complicates, makes more challenging, um, these discussions of what rights are owed to all Europeans under these new regulations coming out through European integration. Especially because at least one of the big uh, original member states, Italy, views this as extraordinarily threatening. Right. Yeah, I think that that is, yeah, I, I, it's uh, it, Italy's role in the book. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a French historian. I'm certainly not a historian of, of Italy, but I think that um, the... Italy's role and the attitude of Italy's administrators in this history is fascinating because Italian administrators are deeply concerned about competition from if Algeria truly is understood as just, you know, part of France and thus part of the EEC. And it's because they want um, they want to make sure that their own citizens, specifically migrant laborers, are going to be the ones benefiting the most and who are the most supported through this new, you know, ease of movement of labor through integrated Europe, you know, the six, the original member states. Um, And they're also really concerned about their agricultural output, which gets into a whole historiography that is incredibly rich about, you know, sort of the meaning of the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. Southern Italy, understandings of of race and and geographical understandings of the Mediterranean as being something quite different from Northern Europe. But, you know, it, it really is so significant that southern Italy's agriculture is very similar to some of what Algeria is producing, you know, and and also southern France, right? Um, wine, especially very affordable wine, uh, olive oil, citrus, things like that, that are, it's just incredibly menacing. And so for the Italians in particular, the idea that Algeria could be considered Europe almost seems to potentially um, damage Italians' own right to claim the European rights that they believe they deserve under all of these new regulations. So let's walk through this a little bit and get into a little bit of detail. So Treaty of Rome, right from the beginning, what role does Algeria play? 
Yes. So the Treaty of Rome, that's what um, leads to the European Economic Community. So it's signed in 1957. Algeria winds up due to French um, demands, really, uh, French ultimatums, winds up being named in a portion of the Treaty of Rome that delineates the geographic expanse of the Treaty of Rome. So, or of the EEC, I should say. So, um, there are, I think, if memory serves, there's maybe four sections. One says, you know, it lists the metropolitan territory of the six. Um, and then there's a, a section that um, acknowledges uh, the SAR. So it doesn't, that doesn't matter for very long. <laughs> and, then, um, and then there's a, there's, um, and then there's a section that talks about Algeria. And then it also lists, this is important, I don't talk about it at length in my book, but it's both Algeria and then the overseas departments of France. So it's, it. I argue it that Algeria, could you repeat that? Sorry. It does distinguish between them. It, it names them separately, but it's in the same section. And um, I would argue that the reason the departments of, uh, the overseas departments of France get, get, uh, included in general is specifically because of uh, France's anxiety about the Algerian situation. You know, they don't like to call it a war, <laughs> um, right, right. but those are included. And so what that means is that when the, um, when the six signed the Treaty of Rome, it specifically includes Algeria as a named part of it. It doesn't mean that all regulations related to the EEC are immediately going to many regulations will apply to Algeria, it will be on a period of delay. So a delay, you know, I think anybody who's been following even um, news about Brexit realizes that uh, European institutions move slowly and often there's a deliberate delay built in. Mm -hmm. So the delay part is actually not an unusual part of, uh, of a European uh, treaty. What is unusual is that by the time the delay um, ends, Algeria is independent, <laughs> and yet it is named in the treaty. Um, and I argue in the book that the reason Algeria winds up named in the treaty is because uh, the negotiations for the European Economic Community essentially coincide with Algerian anti-imperial nationalists um, managing to finally get the UN General Assembly to discuss this Algerian crisis, the Algerian war. and. Um, the French go from sort of lumping Algeria with their sort of more traditional colonies um, to saying, no, we really need to name Algeria. And I would argue that they do this because they're fighting international opinion and they want the support of uh, their fellow European states to say, no, no, certainly it's, of course it's French, of course it's Europe. Look, we're signing a treaty saying it's so. And there's also a material gain for them if they can secure some of this um, European funding, if they can secure some of this um, trade, for example, um, benefiting Algerian agricultural trade, then they will bring money into Algeria, which they believe will resolve some of the problems that caused the war to begin with that of course again they're not really acknowledging is a full-blown war of independence and then things begin to proceed and um some of the complications begin to appear yes <laughs> it's it essentially as soon as as the treaty of rome is signed and then you know within it within the year and uh in 1958 it goes into effect 
it's less clear the degree to which the French are very interested in following through and actually having um, Algeria benefit from the content. So that sort of swings more to, to my argument that the, um, the, almost that the semantics matter, right? That this, this, it's almost a symbolic declaration. And yet the French are um, antagonizing their partners, um, which increasingly, um, I, I mean, we talked about Italy, but it, it's really the, the Netherlands are <laughs> deeply displeased about this. Um, they, they are really pushing for certain pools of funding to go towards Algerian development projects. And it's in a way that leads, um, France's European partners to say, are we now sort of funding your colonial endeavors? We did not sign on for right. that. So the complications begin within um, the sense that the French kind of step back and seem less eager to demand full-throatedly, this is definitely France on the European stage, but also because now that France has signed the Treaty of Rome, which is so important for European integration, um, the their partners can stop making nice quite as much because France's signature mattered so much, but now they've secured the signature, they can test the waters of being more critical of France than they could before the EEC was founded. So at what point does uh, does French attitude sh uh, shift? When, what, what changes in terms of, and why does it change? So, you know, it's, re it's gradual. Um, it, so historians who, who work on, you know, for example, public opinion and, and the war in Algeria, they really trace that it's it, the, the, the Algerian War of Independence, it's lengthy, you know, the official length, you, we could argue that it starts in, in 1944, but, but, uh, or 45, but we won't, you know, yeah. But just saying officially, you know, 19, it's 1954 to 1962. So it's a long war. It's really not until the late 1950s that we begin to see a, a sort of real public opinion shift beginning in France when it's clear that it's it's long. The war has been brought to the metropole, especially through terrorist violence on the part of the OAS. Um which is a, a, a group that wants France to maintain control of Algeria. Um, and so the, in terms of the French attitude towards um, insisting that Algeria is part of Europe, it's also, you know, kind of following those tides of public opinion, um, but it really begins to shift greatly after Algeria's independence and really only years after Algeria's independence. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not 1958 or 1962 that suddenly, you know, flips a switch and the French say, oh, never mind, that was all for naught. The economic ties remain, and French officials also do not think um, that the settler community is not returning, right? The settlers go en masse to the metropole, but, yeah. but the French believe that they'll go home, in effect, and they don't. They they just they don't return to Algeria, but the impetus to maintain those economic ties and even those you know to some degree we could say political ties it, it remains, um, and so it's really not until the mid '60s that the French uh, begin to really pull off and to be less interested, and so that kind of helps to explain the 
the very slow exit of Algeria from the EEC. The French are still hoping that, you know, Algeria will be purchasing their goods. Um, the, the question of the wine industry is, in, is incredibly challenging because there had been, you know, great dependence on Algerian grapes, Algerian, um, you know, sort of affordable wine coming into the mm -hmm. metropole and more. So it's a, it's a slow change of heart and it outlasts independence by far. It was really striking to me your description of you know the of what French officials were thinking at the time that it wasn't going to be a clean break that uh, you know the, the a lot most of the settlers would stay and a lot of their calculations were based on that. How did they react when suddenly it just didn't happen that way? Yeah, I mean the the history of the um, arrival and welcome, or some would say non-welcome, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. of, of the settler population in France is really fascinating. That actually was some of what I, when I set out to write this book, and as I was searching, when it was my dissertation, that was some of my initial questions were based around my interest in the settler population and its return um, to France. It was certainly a surprise, we could say, for French officials. Um, it was it was not the uh, anticipated result of the war, um, but these uh, settlers who who came to France, many for the first time. You know, when we say return, it's uh, of settlers. It's not necessarily accurate to their own lived experience because many of them had been born in Algeria, might have even been third generation born in Algeria, and they might have been of say. Uh, Spanish or Italian descent, not even French descent. But when they move to France, they have citizenship rights. So um, challenges, challenging as it was, and uh, you know, there's a, a lot of literature often produced by the settler community about the great traumas of leaving Algeria. Um, they, they did have rights. There were um, a variety of, of protections put into place, things like um, being able to delay paying taxes until, um, you know, until a breadwinner was, had the capacity to, you know, to come up with that kind of money, things like that. Um, you know, just the support of the French state was built up behind these populations in that way. Um, in, in terms of what that meant for France's relationship to Algeria, it's not one that I, um, looked into at length, but I think it is really fascinating to think that they did not expect this to be <laughs> the result. And they were negotiating on that basis. Right. They, and, and I think it's, it sort of clues us into, you know, more broadly when we look at histories of decolonization, that it, it's usually not just a snap of the fingers because it's, mm -hmm. it's, the extraction process is long because it's not just removing troops, it's untangling economies, you know, people's lives, homes, livelihoods, um, you know, certainly historians of uh, Algerian perspectives on the Algerian War of Independence, and there were many perspectives, you know, even within those fighting for liberation. The relationship to France is, is complicated, you know, and incredibly long. So I think that that history of extraction and then overlaying, thinking about the European angle is really fascinating because the sort of promises of rights become even more complicated if we consider what the EEC in theory had to offer Algeria. And one thing which really kind of amazed me, even though it shouldn't, is how after independence, uh, Benbella 
basically then writes to the European community and says, hey, about those, uh, about those rights, um, how about that? And that, you know, you know, independence, but, you know, they do have a treaty. They are named in the treaty. Yes, that, that, tele- so Ben Bella sends a telegram. It's in uh, December of 1962. So, you know, only, only a few months after independence, essentially saying, I'm going to be sending, you know, a negotiator to Brussels to work out what it means that we're in this treaty and, and figure out what our future relationship will be. And it's so funny because, if you just tell the history in a very flat way, it's so obvious. Yes, they are named in this treaty. So yes, of course, independent Algeria's leaders be curious about what that what that means that they are literally named in the treaty. But the reaction in Brussels is so uncomfortable, so mm-hmm. panicked, um, and the six are not in agreement at all. I mean, some you know there are some loyalties between them, so some of them are in agreement with others. But you know, some would like to um, answer right away. Others would like to send the same type of letter that they would send to a now independent state that had been a more traditional colony. Um, Some just want to send a a, a letter that says, thank you, we received your telegram. Um, And it it shows, you know, that the European um, uh, administrators just had not thought through what that would mean. You know, they hadn't thought through, again, to sort of allude to, to Brexit, they had not thought through what it would mean if if someone wanted to go um, and, and it's, you know, more uncomfortable because of course they could say, well, of course it's not Europe, it's Algeria. And yet here's this piece of paper saying, mm-hmm. well, it, it is part of, you know, it is part of the geographic expanse of Europe. So what now? So what was de Gaulle's position on all of that? De Gaulle is, is, um, it's, I think one of the things that I really found interesting in my that I found really interesting as I was researching, I don't go into it at length in the book, but I think for people who are interested in the kind of transition between the Fourth and the Fifth Republic, I think one of the most sort of fascinating, maybe you know, it's something that I could have delved into more and I didn't, but something that is really fascinating is, you know, a lot of work thinking about the Fourth and the Fifth Republic is that it's a big break. You know, it's a it's a, of course it's a major break. Literally, a new republic emerges. And um, and yet, this is something that has great continuity. You know that that the politics of the and here I'm talking more about before independence. Mm-hmm. The Fourth Republic pursues a uh, colonial um, uh, a, a colonial approach to negotiating for European integration, whether it, in whatever it, they are doing for Europe, it is in the service of protecting. The French Empire that does not end with the Fifth Republic. It's not as if um, de Gaulle comes in and says, "Oh, never mind." You know, European integration has nothing to do with our empire. He very much thinks it has everything to do with the empire. Um, we can even look at um, his vetoes of Great Britain as being really related to you know fear of fear of the Commonwealth. Um, coming in as being part of uh, Europe, the sort of underlying thing that's not spoken is, of course, France has done just that. They've made sure that their empire is woven into Europe, but they are, uh, but French officials, including de Gaulle, are are very disinterested in allowing Britain to do the same thing. Um, In terms of, of what de Gaulle thought about, say, Ben Bella sending his negotiator to Brussels after independence, I think 
I, I don't know, but I think that my answer would really be that a lot of the history of European integration as I see it is the history of middling bureaucrats, um, <laughs> often unnamed, you know. Um, what you were looking at in the archives. Exactly. And, and these are the, these are the people who have the big opinions. Sometimes they don't have a name, you know, or, you know, mm -hmm. it's clearly somebody's kind of the person, maybe somebody's number two or number three signing a document in their name. Um, I once heard somebody at a talk discuss how amazing it is in the archives to come across, you know, the cigarette burn where you could tell that it was an extra important um, memo. And so somebody <laughs> let their cigarette ash onto it as they were reading it. And I think that these were the people, and I should really say these were the men, um, because my book is, is populated by um, these kind of, um, you know, state functionaries in France who are mostly men at this time. They are the ones who have this concern and they have mixed feelings about it because again, the economies are not pulled apart, you know, and that really matters. Yeah, and, and to me, this is, you know, to bring this full circle, you know, someone who, you know, comes at this from the Middle East perspective, you know, that, that's what's so interesting is how unclear and uncertain the borders really were between the populations, the different treatment of the Piedmont and the Harkis uh, on the ret on return, um, and the, the interpenetration, uh, interconnections of the economies and what that does to French negotiating. To me, this is like really kind of one of the big takeaways of the book. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that I'm glad you brought up the Harki. So the Harki, for anybody listening who's less familiar with the with the history, they are um, Algerian men. Um, you know, typically we'd say Algerian Muslims, but you know, some historians have pointed out that we shouldn't always ascribe right, right. somebody's identity to them. But they are um, indigenous Algerian men who fight on the side of the French army for. Of, or end of the French um, for, so against Algerian independence for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, unsurprisingly in 1962 at independence, they, um, they and their families are subject to enormously devastating reprisals. Um, some of their French commanders managed to get them to France, um, but, you know, there's not a full scale French effort to evacuate them in, in the way that there's a, you know, support for the settler uh, European population. And so even when they arrive in France, it's a very slow, um, it's a very slow process to get them support veterans rights and more even today that, you know, children and grandchildren of Harki still put on protests to um, decry their treatment at the hands of the French state. And I think that's a whole other way that we could be looking at this history, you know, that on the European level that I look at, the ambiguity is really, really useful and it shows how when it is um sort of exigent for the french they're able to make claims about europeanness about ownership about the frenchness of certain spaces or people when it is not very convenient to do so it's just as easy to sort of set that aside and say you know well they're they're not french right we can it's obvious that they're not french right and even if it's not expressed in racial terms because the french state sort of issues racial terms that it's it's very easy to say Mm, we don't, we don't mean that, right? It's not, it's, they're clearly not the same, right? And I think um, there's something that it's, it's always taken as a given. Um, you know, the title of my, my book um, is, a, is a quote from a bureaucrat that I'll, I'll paraphrase where he says, it's obviously absurd to consider 
Algeria to be the seventh member state, right? Because there's a six original member state. So independent Algeria is obviously absurd to consider it to be the seventh member state. But he goes on to say, but actually we can't say what it is, right? And so I think that that's kind of the heart of the matter. It's obviously absurd to believe that these Harki are the same as, you know, a, a, a French military veteran who was born in Paris or something like that. And yet we can't completely reject the fact that they're claiming these rights. And one can, one can almost imagine, we don't have to imagine, you read it in the archives, you know, a, a Dutch or a German official just looking at the French and saying, just tell us what they are. <laughs> yes, and then we'll definitely. Great. Completely. I mean, I think that that's one of the really striking things is that there's this whole element of um, citizenship that comes up as well, you know, because I think this is a moment where the idea of European and, and being a European with European rights mm-hmm. is, um, is emerging in, in something close to its contemporary context, right? I mean, it's it's not as easy as, you know, the study abroad kid today, right. you know, waking up in, in Berlin in the morning and, you know, hopping you know, forgetting their passport and going to Amsterdam or whatever they want to do. It's not that easy, but it's the beginning of the structure that will allow for that kind of movement. Um, But there's within that then is there's both the concept of the European identity, but there's also, um, there's also this question of who even is a French citizen right now, right? And so, you know, Algerian citizenship as you know, an independent state, right? It, it's born in 1962. So suddenly we have people acquiring new new types of citizenship and with that new types of rights, but the old rights, it's not entirely evident what will happen with those. Well, we've been talk, speaking with Megan Brown about her new book, The Seventh Member State. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This was great. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's news segment, we're joined by Sami Atola, the Policy Initiative, and Christiana Pereira, a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton, uh, to talk about the recent elections in Lebanon. Uh, Sami, Christiana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mark. So these election results uh, were much more interesting than certainly I had expected, and um, both of you are in Beirut on the ground. You've been following this really closely. Can you tell us a little bit about just what happened in terms of the election results as they've been reported and what is the new parliament going to look like? Uh, Sami? Yeah, sure. Um, First, thank you for having us, Mark. Um, uh, Definitely this whole election took us by surprise. Uh, We were just expecting that the same ruling political parties would be reelected as usual and maybe we'll have one or two or three major uh, or three candidates from the independent movement to gain seats. But in fact, um, if I may, uh, there are sort of maybe three major sort of um, outcomes uh, from uh, the election. The first is while Hezbollah maintained its 13 seat members um, very much intact, its allies lost uh, a number of seats. And I'm talking about the Amal movement, I'm talking about the Free Patriotic uh, movement, as well as the Lebanese Democratic uh, Party. Uh, which is kind of an interesting to observe and we come back to that and why this happened. Number two, we see the Christian rivalry is intensifying between the FPM, the Free Patriotic Movement and the Lebanese forces where the latter has gained a number of seats now is gonna be challenging the FPM, which is obviously close to Hezbollah uh, over the leadership of the Christian community or so it claims. Uh, And number three is the emergence of uh, the new independent uh, candidates. Uh, I think there are about 13 or 14 members. 
that's a significant increase from one person in uh, 2018, Paula Yacomia, to now a, a 13 member block. And this is very interesting to see how this is going to affect the dynamics in the political system. So who are these 13 or 14 independents? Uh, you know, what do they represent in terms of uh, political vision or affiliations? Uh, Christiana? Yeah, so, so these 13 to 14 change candidates, uh, as Sammy put it, uh, are, are an interesting bunch. And I think um, the, the prior research that's been done, including prior research by the Policy Initiative, uh, demonstrates that this is a really diverse group of, of individuals. They come from a range of new parties, many of which were founded in the last uh, three to five years, some founded in the aftermath of the October 2019 protests. Um, these change candidates come from, are kind of concentrated in a few electoral districts. Uh, three, for example, come from uh, Beirut 2, West Beirut 2 come from, from Beirut 1, East Beirut. Uh, three come, come from the districts of Shouf and Ale, um, and, and two come from South Three. So this is, this is a district in which two opposition candidates made inroads against, against uh, the Hezbollah Amal Alliance. Uh, and, and as Sami said, these change candidates in particular made really strong gains against, not exactly against Hezbollah itself, but against uh, several of its sort of smaller allies that have been firmly in place since... Uh, since certainly since 2005, and many of them since the end of the civil war. And these include people uh, like Talal Arslan in, in Ale, uh, Faisal Karame in Tripoli, uh, and, and Eli Fursli, for example. These are names that people are really, really familiar with of having been the sort of old guard in Lebanese politics. And they have been you know, pretty soundly defeated in these elections. Um, another interesting point, I think, is that the category of opposition itself is is really in flux in Lebanon, it's being contested. So not only did these 13 to 14 uh, change candidates win, but you also see the rise of some of these more, what summer people are, are calling traditional opposition figures. People like former justice minister Ashraf Rifi in Tripoli, Osama Saad uh, in Saida, Abdurrahman Bizri, the former mayor of Saida. These are people who have claimed the mantle of opposition while obviously not being in the same category as these 13 to 14 change candidates. And you have other groups that are sort of previously affiliated with government, like the Kata'ib, uh, like Michel Mouawad uh, and his candidates that, that have made it in and are sort of, again, positioning themselves as opposition. So you sort of have these different categories. And, and I think the question is, uh, all of them, the, the one commonality is that they're sort of positioning themselves very clearly against this quote unquote regime of traditional sectarian parties. Uh, and the question is what, what will they sort of do next? So it's a kind of a revolt against uh, the old entrenched elite but from a, a number of different directions. Exactly. Um, I think there are certain issues on which many if not all of these change candidates are aligned. Uh, but I also think they're, in terms of the policy preferences that they've stated, they're, they're quite diverse. And to be honest, we also just don't know that much about them because uh, in terms of the change candidates, all but one of them, uh, Paula Yobian in, in East Beirut, uh, have never been MPs before. So how, how did they do it? How did they manage to you know, break through the party cartel and actually win these seats when they've really never been able to before. Uh, Sammy, can you tell us a little bit about the campaigns and how they managed to do this? 
Uh, sure, uh, Mark, and it's definitely impressive. I mean, um, as Christiana said, they are competing against the old guards, right? Who actually have been in place forever. So, uh, so they walked into this election, uh, obviously facing the old guards, uh, facing each other as well, because uh, unfortunately they didn't walk in united. I think they only had in maybe four districts uh, unified front, but in other districts, they were also competing against each other, which was a, an unfortunate. Uh, they also faced major intimidation from the thugs of the ruling political parties, including, you know, clientelistic practices, vote buying and what have you, as well as the media bias, right? Because we've even actually at the policy initiative, we've actually uh, monitored that. And, you know, they had very little exposure compared to the ruling parties. All of that, if you look at it, it's really impressive, you know, that they've been able to uh, break grounds here. Now, I think to just have a, a complete sort of picture, and as Christiana said, you know, some of these major breakthroughs happened in a couple of districts, uh, and maybe it's good to sort of bring in sort of uh, an intra-elite rivalry that actually helped making or for them to make gains, obviously pending now the data that we actually we just received from the Ministry of Interior. But, but I also suspect, for example, in Beirut um, too, uh, they've made, uh, you know, they won a couple of seats uh, against, you know, a major player called Mahzoumi, for example, who's trying to make more gains, very rich businessman, or the remnants of the future movement, the Senora faction within the, the future movement. Now, to see how they actually were able to beat both, you know, one wonders whether there's also what's happening is that, you know, the former future movement actually maybe potentially lent a hand to these spots or voted for the opposition here. And, and, I, and I say that because I feel that this intra-elite rivalry, whereby probably Hariri thought that it's actually, instead of just staying or abstaining or asking his constituency to stay at home, which they didn't, by the way, because the turnout wasn't as low as we thought it was gonna be uh, for the Sunni community, uh, most likely I suspect that they voted for the opposition rather than for the Senora uh, and the Mahzoumi, uh, parties because I think they presented themselves to be threatening to the uh, former Prime Minister uh, Saad al-Hariri. So we also see another inter-elite conflict in the, in the mountain uh, in Shouf Alay. Uh, I think it's very interesting we see also uh, as Christiana said, Islam also from all family losing, you know I mean? This is a shock, right, to the system. So we're wondering also this rivalry happening between Jumlat, another Druze leader versus Islam, which is a very old rivalry, right? It's been there for ages, you know? And we, we see that potentially some of the votes went for the opposition, you know, at the expense of Islam. So once we start seeing the spectrum, you see that the opposition group were able to leverage, obviously, the people's discontent and dissatisfaction, that's for sure. Um, despite being not united in several districts, they still were managed to, to win. But I think they were able to um, have to advantage this intra-elite rivalry in certain areas that actually allowed them to make more gains than what we had expected. Now, yeah, I would... No, go ahead, Christian. Okay, if I, yeah, 
I would just add uh, a couple of quick points. I agree with with everything Sam you said, and I think focusing uh, on some other trends in in Beirut too and in Shuvale specifically are, are kind of interesting. In both cases, you saw uh, expat voting uh, helped the opposition. This was something that was kind of in question because the majority sure. of expats in, la in the last electoral cycle voted for establishment parties. Uh, and then this election, I think they, they did play a critical role in a few select races, not all of them. Uh, I also think in both of these districts where opposition candidates made inroads, you, you saw uh, the opposition lists that won were these sort of broad umbrella coalitions of different opposition groups. Uh, and I think prior to the elections, it was unclear whether this was going to be appealing to voters. It was this sort of mishmash of different groups, different ideologies uh, going to work. And it seems in those two cases, at least, and in a few others, it, it did. And I also think those, those two districts were characterized by, uh, you know, personalities that were maybe better known, better, uh, better known faces. Um, and so the interaction of these factors, I think, played a critical role in, in these change that it's okay. making inroads there. And Mark, if I may add to, to Christiana here. So, and if we look at Hezbollah, for example, because we haven't mentioned uh, much about them, right? We see two interesting sort of um, observations. One, as I mentioned earlier, they were, they kept their seats, all the 13 seats. But what we see is that they didn't come to the rescue of some of their allies, right? And that's really interesting. Uh, for instance, if I look at the number of extra votes that Hezbollah um, had or gained, and they gained a lot of extra votes this time than 2018, which means according to this law, they could have distributed the surplus of votes to their colleagues or allies, but for some reason, they haven't. So here is another sort of hypothesis of what's going on potentially that also needs to observe. Because I'd like to sort of, when I'm thinking of Hezbollah, uh, people tend to just put all the allies of Hezbollah in one camp. But effectively, there is a pro-Iranian camp, which is obviously presented by Hezbollah. But there's also the pro-Syrian camp, right? Which is very close to Hezbollah. But sometimes they're not totally aligned. Hmm. And if you see all the people or a lot of the opposition or a lot of the MPs who lost their seats or some of them are actually close to our pro-Syrians. You know, we're talking about, you know, Ali Firzli, we're talking about Ahmed Hardan, uh, Asad Hardan, we're talking about uh, others, Faisal Karami. And we see that the ones who made it, like Jamil Sayed, who ran on the list of Hezbollah, but he's very pro-Syrian and they're not very happy with him. Um, he had 33,000 votes in 2018. It went down to 11,000 votes this time, sending an interesting message also to the senior regime about their allies and how probably they were clipping their wings. So that is something to observe beyond Lebanon of what's going on here, because I think there's a sort of a message going also to Assad, who also happens to be, or to have visited uh, Abu Dhabi, in fact, a few months ago, uh, which I think the Iranians were a bit concerned about this trip. Uh, and I'm wondering if we see the effect of that on the Lebanese, Lebanese uh, political or electoral scene. So, uh, but yeah, over to you. 
Well, that's fascinating because uh, certainly in the in the immediate aftermath of the election, the narrative that has coalesced is that Hezbollah lost and that this represents a setback for Hezbollah. But from what you're saying, there might be more to it than that. Mm. Oh, no, absolutely. It's much more nuanced. And unfortunately, um, a lot of the press and particularly the foreign press, all what they care about is did Hezbollah win or did it lose? Does it have a majority or it doesn't? But in fact, it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, whether it does have a majority or not, the numbers don't really uh, mean much, right? Because, you know, there's the de jure institutions, but there's the de facto institutions, right? Uh, Hezbollah doesn't, and most parties don't work that way in terms of the of the numbers and whether that is going to have major sort of impact um, on the policy uh, sphere. And we can talk about that as well, but yes. Yeah, I think um, I think this this narrative of whether or not Hezbollah wins or loses vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, for example, the Lebanese forces, this more Saudi backed or aligned party. It's almost taking the parties on their own terms and using the narratives that they want to put forward rather than, as Sammy said, uh, looking at the de facto institutions and the ways that they operate vis-a-vis -vis one another since 2005. These parties have mostly formed national unity or quasi-national unity governments together. They engage in this form of what some scholars have called promiscuous power sharing. Uh, the LF and Hezbollah have been in most governments together. Uh, and, and Hezbollah's, uh, I think, I believe an MP for Hezbollah, Mohammed Rad, the other day called for a national unity government. He said this is what's necessary in the aftermath of these elections. So you know, I think what's more interesting is to see who the, the more interesting cleavage here is between the people who are are somehow vested in the status quo and those who are, you know, compelled by their constituents or otherwise compelled to oppose it. And so the question of what this opposition can do, I think, really comes down to how they ally, where they find common ground and where they disagree. And this opposition is going to, uh, as Sammy and I have both mentioned, include not only these uh, change MPs, but also people from the more traditional opposition, people from these repentant parties that are trying to label themselves as opposition. Uh, what blocks will form are, are not taken as a given right now. Uh, and and that will determine, I think, um, you know, issues that are that are coming up, for example, uh, the the renewal of the term of the Speaker of the House, Nabi Buri, for example. Um, and and yeah, it's really nothing. Nothing is set in stone yet. So very, very quickly, um, as we're looking at the, at the government formation and, and what happens next, um, would it be would it be fair to say that a national unity government would tend to neuter the effect of these new independent uh, MPs? Or is there something is there something else which might happen? You know, uh, so obviously now we're gonna see how it's gonna evolve. But I think the importance of the 13, 14 MPs, uh, in my opinion, is to bring life back or political life back to parliament. Our parliament has been hijacked, has been dormant, has been inactive in legislating bills that serve people's interests and in holding the government accountable. Having these 13 MPs in power, I think it's essential that they do so, that they ask the questions, they follow up on things, they force the government, they force even the parliamentary speaker, you know what I mean, to run the show as it's supposed to be run and not do it as has been done for years, 
where it's just a collusion of interests and we actually very untransparent, lack transparency and lacks any sort of interest in serving the people. So whether it's going to be national unity government or not, you know, obviously, and whether the Christians or FPM will agree that it has the larger share or the, the Lebanese forces, let's put that aside. I think the, the ECMPs as a bloc, if they were able to work together and actually have a united front in their policy uh, sphere and their policy position, I think there's a great chance that they could actually steer and force a different political behavior uh, on the ruling political parties now that they're actually exposed from the inside. Because otherwise, before we were all from the outside, we couldn't really see, we, you know, how things were running in the sense that of how they were passing laws, how they were having these charade of performances in parliament. Now we actually have 13 real actors, and I hope they remain true to that so we can actually hold the remaining members accountable uh, to, to the system. Over. Christiana, last thoughts? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think uh, in tandem with that, the maybe symbolic or representational aspects of these MPs being elected really can't be overstated. You know, I've, I've heard countless people say, finally, there, there are people in parliament who represent some version of my interests, even if they're not perfectly aligned. And there's more than one of them now. And these people look more like the version of Lebanon that a lot of people see in their, their day life. And, you know, I don't mean to romanticize what's, what's going to happen because surely this is gonna be a very contentious and divisive process, government formation, uh, you know, debates over legislation. But um, I do agree that not only can these, these uh, change candidates potentially, uh, not deterministically, but potentially act as a sort of watchdog in parliament, they can hold any sort of unity or collusive government accountable, um, but they can also work in tandem with uh, grassroots movements and civil society to, to sort of revitalize people's conception of their relationship to the state, uh, what they're owed, um, and, and how they can hold elites accountable. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, Sammy, Christiana, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's news segment, we're joined by Cinzia Bianco of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Cinzia, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. So there's just been a, uh, a change in the leadership of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, you've been following it closely for a long time. You had a really interesting tweet thread about it. I thought we could talk to you about what happened and what it means. Yeah, with pleasure. So um, there is definitely, you know, it's one of those significant moment in the politics of the United Arab Emirates when um, a leader uh, passes away. And in this case, the death of Khalid bin Zayed makes no exception. I mean, of course, on one hand, um, Khalifa bin Zayed had basically retired from the public life after he suffered a stroke in 2014. And his brother, who was already at that point the crown prince, basically became the de facto leader and president of the UAE. Mohammed bin Zayed. Uh, but now, of course, you know, there is a, a, a officiality of, of it all, of the new positions, and that these appointments will inevitably change a few things, um, which, you know, we might argue they would change only the formalities um, of 
a role. But then the reality is that when you actually um, switch into a different position and you're officially uh, in a position of leadership, also, you know, your um, daily tasks change and the way that other people interact with you change. Um, so just to give a one quick um, light example is, um, for example, now Mohammed bin Zayed, having become the president of the UAE, um, is has uh, uh, the immunity that is granted to head of states in foreign courts. And that is, you know, additional layer of security and, and uh, further emboldening his, his own confidence uh, when he travels abroad and how he interacts with uh, the people that now as of protocol, are uh, at the same rank as he is. And you saw that in the uh, the high-level delegation that the United States just sent. Yes, I mean, that's just one example. Um, I mean, and let's, if, if we focus on the United States, for example, let's mention that Mohammed bin Zayed has not been traveled to the U.S. Uh, for years. Uh, since before he was involved uh, in uh, in a few political scandals that also have legal ramifications in the U.S., so uh, for example, he uh, was he attended that infamous meeting at the Seychelles, where actually his brother Tahnun bin Zayed was also present, and Tahnun is a national security advisor and could be appointed as the new crown prince of the UAE. And that meeting, uh, where a number of figures also linked to former President Trump allegedly um, were present to discuss um, several political questions and are now, of course, involved in legal proceedings connected to that to investigate where, whether there was any wrongdoing. And that, you know, there is a similar um, also legal proceeding um, around the figure and work of Tom Barracks, for example, who was an official nominated by the Trump administration and may have had uh, in a appropriate links to the UAE. Um, he also, of course, has uh, um, was was linked to uh, the the leadership uh, in that case, and mm. therefore, you know, that uh, would also put Mohammed bin Zayed in an uncomfortable position. So let's go back to Tahnoun. You you mentioned that uh, he's one candidate to um, kind of fill the position that Mohammed bin Zayed was in before. Who are the other candidates, and why does it matter? Yeah, so when uh, Khalifa bin Zayed died, um, it was a very quick uh, process that followed. Um, all of the ruling families of the seven different emirates uh, gathered together and they simply ratified uh, the um, promotion, if you will, of Mohammed bin Zayed, who had been the crown prince for a long time and, and the de facto leader. And so they sort of solidified that um, hold that the Abu Dhabi a royal family, and in particular the uh, Al Nahyan branch that uh, is uh, is directly linked to Mohammed bin Zayed, has on the role and office of the presidency of the UAE. Um, and that is, you know, very interesting if you look at internal political dynamics of the country, because the UAE is constitutionally a federation of seven different emirates. And on paper, the seven ruling families and the emirates would, should have same and similar weight on, uh, on decision making, for example. Um, so in reality, of course, that has long not been the case, if ever, because Abu Dhabi is much bigger and much wealthier. And they have... Uh, 
greater oil resources, um, and they have had a lot of uh, um, much and much bigger oversight, especially on foreign policy, on security policies, and all of these uh, particularly sovereign uh, portfolios, as they are known. Um, especially after they had to bail Dubai out after the uh, the, the real estate and global financial crisis decade ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. Up until 2008-2010, Dubai was a, quite an effective counterweight to Abu Dhabi in that sense. And Dubai was very active, especially on decision-making related to economic issues, but not only. They also waited sort of heavily um, at different times on foreign policy questions. But then, of course, the bailout by Abu Dhabi um, came with a number of also strings attached. And one, and one of those strings was that um, decision-making was now much more clearly um, centralized in Abu Dhabi. And that process of centralization is something that was clearly very dear to Mohammed bin Zayed. It's something that he has pursued on several fronts, uh, centralizing decision-making, as we said, but also centralizing institutions um, as much as possible. All federal institutions have been relocated to Abu Dhabi, for example. Um, interestingly, he's also attempted to centralize um, employment in the public uh, sector. And that's an extremely sensitive question in Abu Dhabi and in the UAE in general, because uh, and public sector employment has long been one of uh, key tools of the governments and regimes to um, sort of uh, keep uh, their people uh, linked and sort of especially uh, loyal to the central um, institutions, regimes, or governments. So it has been a tool to sort of solidify and ensure uh, political uh, loyalty um, and allegiance. And it's super interesting that Mohammed bin Zayed has tried to centralize that into Abu Dhabi. And that has, of course, subtracted, um, at least on paper, some of that capacity to attract political allegiance by the other seven royal families and ruling families in the other uh, Emirates. So that, I think, is, uh, is very telling of the whole political strategy that Mohammed bin Zayed has, has embraced. And I think what we're going to see right now is that will... Uh, um, definitely you know be the case even more uh, strongly so i think mohammed bin zayed now uh, being officially the president of the uae will have um will be less uh, sort of uh, less prone to um, always seek out consensus positions and decisions within the Supreme uh, Federal Supreme Council. Or in other words, he will need less um, of the explicit approval, support, um, and full commitment um, of the other uh, ruling families, which means he will perhaps uh, centralize even further because that has been his vision for a long time, and really tried to create, to make the UAE a de facto unitary state as opposed to a, a federation. Um, and this, you know, all of this history and the political, uh, the history of the political vision of Mohammed bin Zayed um, and the history of the political dynamics within the UAE, all of that is a necessary background to understand why it is important um, to find out who will be the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. Because if we assume that decentralization is um, actually happening even further, um, then you know, the, the ruling uh, individuals of Abu Dhabi will have a key role at the, at the federal level 
in an even more significant way in the future. And so there are a couple of options on the table that are being considered. Um, one of those options is to um, appoint as Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi one of the brothers of Mohammed bin Zayed. For example, Tahnun bin Zayed, who's been very active uh, by uh, Mohammed bin Zayed's side as a, a national security advisor. And Tahnun is rather, mm, I would argue, even popular in the, in the wider region, in the sense that in all those regional capitals where there is a regime uh, that is sympathetic to the UAE, or has relations, good, good and positive relations uh, with the UAE. Um, they have had uh, interactions with Tahnun bin Zayed and their perceptions, more or less recurrent uh, um, narrative is that Tahnun bin Zayed is quite pragmatic. He's very much driven by realpolitik considerations. He's not, he's even perceived as being less ideological than Mohammed bin Zayed. Um, and in a way that it's it's an easier interlocutor. It can be an easier interlocutor because of you know a large degree of pragmatism. Another option, you know, would be another brother of Mohammed bin Zayed, and he has you know quite a few of them that have experience in the public sector and in government. Um, a few of them are also prominent, such as Mansour bin Zayed, uh, who is also um, linked to the ownership of Manchester City Football Club in, in the United Kingdom. Um, and, you know, all of these brothers, uh, I guess, uh, would could have a claim to that position um, if you look at the history of right. political succession in the UAE. But then there is another option, which is, to appoint the uh, son of Mohammed bin Zayed, Khalid bin Mohammed bin Zayed. And he also has experience in government, in particular at the Abu Dhabi Executive Council, who is a local uh, government in Abu Dhabi. He doesn't really have a track record of impressive uh, successes and, uh, and achievements um, in government and politics. Um, but uh, he definitely has some of the experience. However, that choice would clearly signal and mark uh, the, a tendency to create a sort of a direct dynasty from right. the lineage of Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi and, and therefore in the UAE. That, that would be, be a, a real change in how the UAE does things. Yeah, that would be a sea change and really go sort of uh, uh, really turn the page from the traditions of politics in the UAE where more or less authority was divided uh, and shared among different uh, uh, ruling families and, uh, and individuals. So that would be, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm calling it hyper-centralization. Mm -hmm. So beyond a step, a step further from centralization. Now, in the last few minutes, um, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed has been in control of UAE foreign policy for quite a long time. So should we expect there to be any significant changes, anything we should look for in terms of the impact on uh, the UAE's foreign relations, whether with the United States, the rest of the region, or anything else? I don't think we will see a massive change in the foreign and regional policies of the UAE, but I do think... Um, I do think that we should expect an even more confident uh, and bolder Mohammed bin Zayed. And I think, you know, it is important to sort of take a minute 
to sit and think about the implications of this further confidence. Because right now, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with a rise in China in the region, and the US retrenching uh, from its traditional role, and, and uh, arguably even you know, the interests that uh, the US had in the, in the wider region, um, we are facing a unprecedented situation. Uh, the, the system that we are operating uh, within is arguably a system of competitive multipolarity. Mm-hmm. And we have, and the Gulf countries, the Gulf monarchies, each in their own way, have been, especially you know, the three uh, most active ones, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE, have been more or less refusing to take sides in this competitive multipolar system. Um, and of course, you know, they have done it in very different ways, where, for example, Qatar has still signaled that they would, um, if, uh, if push comes to shove, support the West. Um, but uh, still, you know, they haven't clearly uh, joined, uh, um, joined that, that uh, sort of that rationale, where Saudi and UAE have clearly uh, refused to take sides. And even being very ambiguous about where they stand if they were forced to take sides. And I think, you know, while we ask ourselves where will Abu Dhabi and Riyadh position themselves, it's important that we uh, spend a minute to consider how the leadership is thinking about these questions and how they feel about their own leadership style. And if we are dealing with an hyperconfident leader who is now has you know, removed even what symbolic obstacle there was between himself and the highest office in, in, the, in the country, I think we have to consider that they might make very bold, uh, very unexpected choice um, that we probably think are uh, too uh, too bold to to consider, mm-hmm. but are not necessarily enough. Well, that's definitely yeah. something that we should watch for, uh, and uh, look forward to talking with you again in the future. Thank you, Cynthia. <laughs> <laughs>